Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Innovation Matters podcast. Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research. I'm Anthony Schiavo, Senior Director at Lux Research. I'm joined by my two colleagues and co-hosts, Mike and Kartik. As always, Mike, how is it going? It's uh, UN General Assembly week here in New York, so the traffic is completely effed everywhere, but uh, I ride a bike, so it doesn't really affect me that much. The globalists really have it out for you. <laughs> I have gotten what about gotten you, trapped up on the UN oh. by, uh, you know, like when the Biden's caravan goes by or something to like shut down the street for, you know, 20 blocks in either direction and not let people pass. So I've gotten like trapped on the east side by that before trying to go like pick up my kids from school. But we'll survive. Yeah, I'm good. Uh, Amsterdam is back to normal. It's been raining the whole day, which is what the Netherlands is supposed to be. <laughs> uh, traffic jams because of the rain, not because of the UN assembly. But uh, yeah, uh, famously good weather back to normal. in Amsterdam. Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like we 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 really missed a trick because we're we're doing our big event in Amsterdam in a couple, maybe month and a half or so, and uh, yeah. November, not really like peak Amsterdam season. <laughs> no, <laughs> probably should have done it in April or May, but uh, maybe next year. Maybe next year we'll, we'll learn. But I'll have to bring out the raincoats. Oh man, the first business trip I ever took to Europe, my my sneakers ended up so soaked that I just uh, I just threw them out at the end of the trip. They never dried out for a week, and uh, yeah, that was that. RIP to that pair of sneakers that were actually given to me by my college senior design partner because he was so despairing at the state of my shoes. And look at you now, Lux King of the Fits. Yeah. And look at me now. Yeah, truly, the, the, the fashion journey has, has been truly completed. Um, so we have some interesting news today. Um, a lot of sustainability and particularly um, sort of consumer sustainability oriented news. And the the big one or, or one of the big ones was Starbucks um, piloting a reusable packaging program. And Starbucks has had a commitment to reusability for, for some years. I think they, they first sort of launched it or, or stated these ambitions in 2020 um, as part of their 2023 goals to reduce both plastic waste and, and I think single-use waste in general. Um, you know, part of that is packaging design innovation, but part of that is reusable packaging. Um, so they just launched this reusable packaging cup program in Napa, California, 12 stores. Um, so it's a pretty small uh, trial soon. Um, and it's quite intensive. You have a, basically a, a sort of a polypropylene or polyethylene cup. You have this sort of... Collection and return station, which washes the cups, um, and there's uh, some digital tracking involved in the cups, um, and the whole thing is basically to try and get the consumer to order similar way as usual, and then bring back the cup either, you know, the next time they visit or that same day, that type of thing. And there's you know there's all these little incentives, there's all these little um, you know, I think you get like 10 cents off. I think you get some points on your Starbucks card. I don't know. Um, it, it seems to me that the big challenge, right, for reusability is the consumer behavior side. Um, and we're going to be talking with a, our guest about this later, but I don't know. Um, I think there's kind of a limit on how much you can achieve with these little incentives and, you know, this need to make it a sort of, you know, it's an in-store ecosystem, right? Where the consumer ultimately has to come back to the store to manage this. I don't know. Um, I think to me, this is, this is an interesting trial, but <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, I'm climate Stalin. So I, I think we have to get to the point of, uh, instituting this from a top down, right? You know, some more standardization across stores, across different types of organizations, different types of brands. Um, and it's going to be really hard to do without that. 
But I don't know. What do you guys think about this? Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of what Starbucks is. One of the things that they're they're looking at here is is the prospect of single use products getting banned, right? And and so they're trying to to get ahead of that um, because it is gonna it is gonna take a lot of time and effort to kind of figure out the right model for this to to develop the consumer behavior to get the right infrastructure and stuff in place for that um because you know maybe needless to say right but they're these the cups they kind of look like the regular starbucks cups but they're polypropylene they're a little bit more more robust it, it looks like as they as they need to be um so i haven't seen the numbers on it but i'm sure these cups contain more plastic um, and because they're polypropylene, they're harder to, instead of PET, they're harder to recycle than your regular Starbucks, um, you know, paper or plastic cups. So if these things are not, in fact, being reused at very high rates, then it's going to be worse from a sustainability perspective. Um, and so I think that I'm sure that's what they're trying to figure out. I'm sure a key, you know, figure of merit or, or metric for this program is going to be what reuse percentage that they can that they can really achieve, but, but that is hard. I mean, there's a part of me that just says like, if you just banned single use cups at the stars at, you know, people would like figure it out within like a couple weeks. You know what I mean? <laughs> like you just, just get rid of it. And like the first time someone walks into a Starbucks and there's no cups, they're going to feel bad or whatever. But then like after that, you know, they'll be fine. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, we've but, done, that's what we've I done with know. plastic bags. Right. Um, and how well has it worked? <laughs> uh, I mean, first of all, we haven't really done this with plastic bags. No one, if you go to a grocery store and you don't have bags with you, they will give you bags. Like maybe in New York, they're true. They'll charge you five cents the and they'll give and, you a kind of yeah, they'll charge one that's, cents. it's not like the thin polyethylene. It's like a little woven polyethylene. I think it's polyethylene. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a little fabric-y sort of thing. Um, that is more, it is intended to be reusable and I do reuse them, but yeah, that happens all the time. I forget my bag and then it's like, Oh, I'll go buy another one for 10 cents. And now I've got all these, um, you know, bags, which again, use more plastic than the, the really cheap single use ones we just banned. Um, what they should do is they should just, they should just open a Starbucks where they just won't sell you a coffee if you don't have a reusable cup with you. <laughs> it's just like premium. Starbucks. Yeah, but I'm, yeah. I'm I'm not sure if I would go to a Starbucks in general. The coffee is just too expensive, and I'm not a coffee drinker. And I know a lot of people crib about that. <laughs> uh, so having an extra cup, uh, you know, that's also going to add to the cost. Uh, I actually welcome the move. I think it's a good thing to start. But how do you dictate consumer behavior? Um, what should that fine be for not bringing the reusable cup back? Uh, it sort of goes back to something I learned during my economics course uh, in university where they have this Pigouvian tax for carbon. So what's the right amount of tax that you should have to incentivize people to jump onto the program? If it's too high, then people are like, oh, it's too expensive. And they look for alternative sources. Um, If it's too low, then people will continue using it because the penalty isn't high enough. Um, So how, how will... Starbucks strike that balance. I think that'll be quite interesting to see. But if I were a coffee drinker and I liked Starbucks coffee and was willing to forego the fact that it's expensive, I will subscribe to the program. Yeah, I'm not convinced that that's the right way to think about it. Because like in crime prevention, right, is kind of a good example. People are highly sensitive to the risk, the perceived risk of getting caught. Like if you think you're going to get caught, that deters crime. But they're not very sensitive or they're much, much less sensitive to the risk of the penalty itself. Like people don't think, oh, well, you know, like the, the, my risk of getting caught is 5%, but this carries, this is like a felony and it carries like a 25 to life sentence. And so my risk adjusted weighting of, of getting caught is actually much higher than that because if I do get caught, you know, it's a big deal. That's not how people think about crime, right? <laughs> they, they just think, mm-hmm. am I going to get caught? Yes or no. And so like the penalty is like, oh, like, is it like, should we give them a $1 off or like 10 cents off plus 25 points? And it's like, I I, I don't know if that really matters like i feel like once you're you know to use the grocery store example once you're in the grocery store and you don't have bags you're gonna pay almost any price for that bag right like if the bag was one dollar you would still pay 
one dollar to get mm-hmm. the bag. Yeah. It would have to be like a hundred dollars <laughs> or I don't know, ten dollars to like <laughs> you know, you, you really have to move up the cost curve uh dramatically to to change consumer behavior in that way. So like to me it's the physical elements of the system and you know just the the lack of alternatives, right? Or the the making it a habit, the sort of building an ecosystem around it. That that's gonna be way more important than like Oh, what, what's the optimal price discount that we give to to get people to get in the in the store with the reusable cups? I just don't think it works that way. Maybe I'm uh, uh, from a very price sensitive market in India because we are pretty price sensitive <laughs> in India. So I guess that's what sort of shaped my thinking when I was making that argument. But uh, yes, no, it's no, it's a good point too because I do think that that the if if this does lead to increased costs, that is going to have an impact. And like you said, more more price sensitive markets. And you know what works in Napa is not going to be the same as what works in you know right. Delhi or whatever, or a lot of places around the world. Well, presumably. And I mean that's one of the big questions of this. And and again, we have a we have a fantastic guest uh, in the second half of this podcast, so stick around. But like one of the big questions is, what is the ultimate cost impact of reusability? Right? Um, is it going to be cheaper? How cheap can it be? For whom will it be cheaper? Right? Is it just going to be something that uh, is ultimately subsidized by? Um, of of forgetful population of people buying new cups every <laughs> every every once in a while, right? Like like who is actually going to bear the cost of this is an interesting um I don't know an interesting wrinkle, um especially in the context of you know expanding this out and and eliminating single use packaging because the growth markets for single use packaging are all you know Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Thailand, India you know, that those types of nations. And, and like you said, Karthik, like the cost sensitivity is, I think, a fairly substantive issue there. Um, although in some ways, I mean, like in Singapore, right, the the hawker centers are, they're using reusable cups pretty regularly, right? It's not that big of a deal. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's, maybe it'll be a much easier transition. Okay. Speaking of easy transitions, we're going to easily transition to our next topic. Uh, through the magic of editing, we're going to cut out the long pause that just happened. <laughs> and uh, we're going to talk about the other big uh, sustainability sort of packaging related news, which is the EU is cracking down on kind of a pretty wide range of things, um, but basically greenwashing claims. And the, these sort of seem to fall in a couple a couple categories. One is just like BS claims, like hey, this is an eco-product. It's like, what does that mean? It means nothing. Uh, you, you can't make that kind of claim. Um, so there's a number of things about here, uh, sort of about like, oh, like unapproved sustainability labels, unapproved certifications, um, you know, that type of thing. The second is specifically offsetting schemes. And it seems like there's a, a substantial crackdown or reduction in the legality of basically carbon offsetting or certain offsetting schemes. Um, and this isn't necessarily, you know, I think we go to carbon offsetting, but like uh, every time I, we touched on this last time, but every time I, I book a flight with my credit card, I, I said, oh, we're going to plant two trees, right? For this, uh, for this flight, right? And that's an offsetting scheme, even though it's a, a very stupid offsetting, offsetting scheme, right? So it's not ex- extremely clear to me what kind of offsetting schemes are going to be banned. Um, we can kind of dig into it a bit more. But then there's also a lot of consumer protection oriented stuff. So basically um, restrictions on sort of durability claims that aren't backed up, um, representation of goods being repairable if they're not repairable, um, some crackdown on like basically prompting consumers to replace your ink cartridges earlier than necessary or any sort of, you know, replacement earlier than necessary and limitations on um, like sort of forced obsolescence or, or planned obsolescence. Right. Um, So it's pretty, pretty wide ranging and pretty, you know, interesting. It, it, It sort of reflects a philosophy again, that, I'm not sure I completely agree with, which is that you know consumer choice being an important thing or a driving factor, right, 
in the sustainable transition where it's like, look, we're going to have products out there. People need to disclose faithfully what's in those products or what the attributes of those products are. And then consumers who value sustainability can choose those products. And like, it's good. Obviously just like lying to consumers is, is not great as far as like a <laughs> an economic theory goes, but I'm not really convinced that like letting just like opening this one up to the free market is really going to get us anywhere. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like if you're a climate activist then the fact that people are claiming some product is carbon neutral when it's not is infuriating and justifiably so, but like, you know, kind of punishing that company for, for that or, um, you know, how much does that, that really drive actual more positive behavior is, is a little bit up in the air, but I think this pr- proposal is interesting because they're not just, you know, which I think some of the, the, the um, NGOs, it sounds like wanted them to do, they haven't just banned carbon neutral claims. They've banned carbon neutral claims unless you can prove they're legitimate. So I, I think the hope is that if companies want to start making these, you know, we've seen this, right? We've, you know, uh, Ari von Berkel on our, and Mukunda uh, Kashik on our team, right? Wrote a, uh, a really interesting report about carbon, a couple of really interesting reports about carbon credits where they really get into thinking about these things. And, you know, you have to think about carbon credits, not just in terms of the cost of them and how much, um, uh, you know, how much carbon you can sequester with them, the sort of scalability, but also in terms of the risk, right? What's the what's the risk that that credit is going to turn out to not have sequestered as much carbon as it is supposed to? And, you know, if you're doing something like forest-based, then those are really, they're really cheap, but they're really high risk because like the odds that if that forest is not properly managed or it burns down or whatever, that the carbon is not actually going to be sequester is pretty high and something like this EU regulation, you know, puts some actual financial teeth behind that, that risk. It's not just like people are going to know your claim is, is BS, but you, you know, you could actually um, be banned from, from making it, or, you know, I, I think it could also even provide a, a platform for, for people to sue these companies for making, or your grounds for people to sue these companies for, for making misleading claims. So it does, you know, put some financial teeth behind that risk aspect of the carbon offset market, and and I, I think be serve as something else that's going to be driving it towards higher quality uh, carbon credits and better monitoring, reporting, and verification behind carbon credits. Yeah, just a couple of thoughts on this for me. Um, I guess again, I'm going to sound like a broken record when I say this, but. I think one of the objectives is to prevent consumers from overpaying for a product. Um, you know, when I go to the supermarket and I see something that says bio or organic on the label, it's usually priced more than something that says that does not say that. Um, so I guess that's the first thing uh, they want to prevent. Now, the word bio is not specifically mentioned in this policy in the in the press release. So. Uh, you know, but I guess that's that's how they're thinking about this, and and the second thing, and and going back to proving, you know, what offset systems and stuff they're using, and and please correct me if I'm not mistaken, um, uh, if I am mistaken, sorry, uh, isn't I'll proving you if you're not mistaken as well. Don't worry, <laughs> that's also important. Uh, <laughs> isn't proving the legitimacy of these green certificates still quite murky? Yeah, it's it's pretty rough. Like, even beyond the legitimacy, I mean, there's there's proving the legitimacy of the actual thing. Like, did you eat? Are you just straight up lying? You know, did you actually plant a hundred trees or whatever? And then there's the much, which is difficult by itself, right? And then there's the even much more difficult question of proving like if planting a hundred trees is even good for the environment, and you know, over what time scale, right? So there's there's a ton of issues at present with all these different approaches. And, you know, I think that's why, like, when we see these these crackdowns, they're going to be focusing on these these credits. But there is a risk here. I mean, in the plastic space, we're beginning to see the exploration of, of plastic recycling credits where you can separate the content from the recycled claim in a sort of similar way that you separate the 
the carbon reduction from the the product, you know, or and or the actual activity and attach it to a product. Um, and you know, this is done for practical reasons. It's very hard to, to recycle certain types of products. We need to build certain types of recycling capacity, and downcycling is kind of a scare word for for activists. But really, it's it's a economically beneficial activity in in most situations. So there are these big mismatches between the groups who are willing to pay for recycled content and the kinds and types of recycled content that are available to them and the usability and all these issues, right? You have these big markets that could consume a lot of recycled content, like carpeting, like automotive, building materials that aren't really willing to pay. And then you have these groups that really want things to be recycled but uh, and have a willingness to pay, but it's actually very difficult to get the, the physical material that's compatible with the application. So, I mean, there is a risk here of crimping certain types of claims that would be valuable for the economy overall and valuable for sustainability, more to the point. Um, but I get where the EU is coming from. You know, I think the pendulum is definitely pretty far on the side of like people lying and pretty not so far on the side of like, oh, legitimate you know, recycling activities or, or, or whatever are being slowed down by this, uh, by, uh, by red tape. I don't think that's a particular issue too far, but I mean, it, it could be in the future. Okay. I want to leave you guys with one last question. Um, there's this incredible Bloomberg article, uh, why Starbucks is, uh, trying to cut wait times and they have done an analysis of how many, possible variations there are of a starbucks cafe latte how many possible variations including all the different pumps of syrup and the sweeteners the types of milk you know the everything else all the extras how many possible combinations do you think there are of the starbucks cafe latte mike i'm putting you on the spot first um 1278 that is so, so low. <laughs> uh, that is insanely low. Multiple orders of magnitude off. Karthik, can you do any better? I'm guessing, uh, I don't know, 100,000 combinations? Uh, just because you said according Mike's option was low, I mean, it made it easy for me. According to Bloomberg, I mean, you are certainly closer. Um, they have come up with the number uh, $383 billion combinations there's an incredible graphic <laughs> I'll, I'll send to you guys but uh <laughs> oh, wow. and they could all go in a reusable cup um so yeah and there's actually a picture of of schultz uh in the u.s senate drinking uh from what appears to be a, a reusable or at least not certainly not a single-use plastic cup there <laughs> One combination I certainly won't agree with is chai tea latte because as an Indian, it uh, pains me to say they use tea and chai in the same sentence because chai is already <laughs> tea. But, uh, and then it already has milk in it, so it's, you also have latte in it. I'm like, what? But uh, yeah. So. Did you know that you could get your cup lined with caramel sauce at, at Starbucks? That's one of the options. There's, there's, there's just so much stuff here. There's a chai pump. Do you know what a chai pump is, Karthik? No, and it's, uh, <laughs> I don't want to know at this point. <laughs> yeah, <Exactly. laughs> sounds, sounds just as offensive. I'm glad that we've we've taken this episode to, to radicalize Kartik against uh, Starbucks. I think we'll leave it there. Um, <laughs> we have a great interview coming up, and we'll see you guys all in the next segment. Okay, we're back with uh, Jonathan Tostevin. He is the CEO of Muse. They're a company that is rethinking takeaway packaging for the circular economy. And we're really delighted to have him here to talk about, of course, everything circular, the state of packaging, but also the overall process of sustainable innovation within the circular economy, because I think this is one of the most uh, fascinating areas and certainly something that I've really enjoyed working on at Lux. Uh, Jonathan, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Real pleasure to be with you guys. Um, yeah, lovely to be on the podcast. Thank you. 
it's our pleasure to have you. Can you just start by telling us a little bit more about yourself and also Muse, what you do and uh, why you do it? Sure, sure. Um, so I'm Jonathan, I'm the CEO of Muse. Um, I am um, based out in Singapore. I've lived here for six years now. I'm originally from the UK. Um, I started off my career actually in government as a civil servant. I've always kind of wanted to work on, on impact and uh, initially social impact. And that's where I thought, um, that's where my journey started off and where I thought I could, I could do that. Um, I focused on international development, uh, ended up working in um, the ministry in, in the UK that specialised in that, including on the Ebola crisis in, in Sierra Leone. Um, but after about nine or 10 years in government, I realised that I preferred, I wanted to be a bit closer to the action. I wanted to, I enjoyed the kind of operation roles, um, like getting my hands a bit dirtier. And um, that kind of led me to social enterprise. And I joined a program called On Purpose in the UK, which helps uh, professionals trans- transition into the social impact, into the social enterprise sector from either the private or public sectors. Um, it's like a year-long program with work placements, coaching, mentorship. It's sort of like a mini MBA. And that, that got me into the world of, of social impact, social enterprise. Um, and it led me to a company called Baloo in the UK that make uh, ethical mineral water for the Horica sector, which is the hotel, restaurant, catering uh, sector in the UK. So they partner with uh, guys like Jamie's Italian, um, Strada Zizi's. They're quite household UK names. Apologies for the international audience. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I'm, I'm do... very aware of Jamie Oliver. Oh, cool. You know those guys, right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, they, uh, they were... Um, pioneering i think at that time they were already um were like donating their profits to water aid to a water sanitation charity but they were going further and measuring their carbon impacts and reducing it by five percent every year this was about seven or eight years ago before you know, a lot of guys were doing that and that was my first taste of actual business but also ethical business and plastics packaging fmb that whole space um and i always thought that i'd been quite sustainable and environmentally friendly i did my recycling you know that sort of thing um i hadn't really ever thought what happened beyond that where does the material go once it's collected whether it's for recycling or for trash um it's kind of stupid when you say out loud but you know that's that's what you do right um and um so that that kind of job really opened that whole world up to me and at that time we we also then just moved out to singapore um there are some beautiful places out here, but you also, also see the impact of ocean plastic and plastic trash more prevalently out here. It's, it's easier to see in, in some of the less developed economies. Um, and then also coincided with like 2018, which was the year of ocean plastic waste, where like everyone crazy about straws. Um, and that kind of all came together and just was a bit of a kind of eureka moment for me around, oh, this like, not only do we not have any control over where this stuff goes once we use it, but there's also like, billions and billions of these materials that we use every day without thinking about it they're just going somewhere uh, and i you know in best case scenario they're being burnt and then put in landfill and that's like not a great best case scenario so um that's um i guess that's, that's how i how i ended up here and i um i when i got here um i wanted to do something just to start um, trying to tackle the problem. So I set my own business called The Final Straw, uh, which was obviously around the straw problem. Um, and I wanted to focus on uh, like trying to have the most impact with that business. So rather than sort of selling BYO material, BYO products, like personal products that consumers could use, I tried to sell wholesale to the retailers, to the bars, the restaurants, the cafes, and persuade them to use them as dine-in materials, um, which was partially successful um uh we saved a million plastic straws from waste but and so it's kind of a drop in the ocean um and through that it took me into whole takeaway packaging and just as i was thinking about like i had this kind of whole circular link for takeaway packaging i met some guys who were having the same thought uh who would just set up a company called revolve um and i joined them opened the singapore market and then couple of years ago i took over as ceo and we also just rebranded as news and, and then i've been running the company since then yeah it's uh interesting you mentioned final straw because i wanted to ask you about that uh and 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 looking at final straw right i mean your entire innovation journey can you just explain us through that process as to how you got to exactly the final straw and beyond that <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. how you got to muse yeah so i mean uh 
it was initially just meant as a bit of an experiment. Like I'd, I'd never set a business up before. I actually wasn't really sure what an invoice was. I had to Google that. And, um, <laughs> I, still, I still don't know. I still don't know, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> people, people pay me, that's all that matters, really. Um, and uh, um, me and a friend who's like a circular economy expert were like, oh, let's just sort of play around with some ideas. And we, so we were looking at like a, a circular rental model for straws where we would deliver straws to restaurants, we'd pick them up, we'd clean them and, and bring them back. Um, which is was a ridiculous idea and um, never going to work because, uh, you know, far too costly and for such a kind of small item, actually kind of difficult to clean straws on mass. We were looking at UV cleaning and they're like done these kind of bubble cleaning stuff. It got a bit ridiculous. And then we just kind of, you know, just we were designing this stuff like just ourselves. And then I went out and started talking to cafes and they were like, well, why don't you just like sell them to us and we'll use them? And they're like, okay, that sounds a lot simpler, less kind of cool and perhaps circular economy designy, but maybe it'll have more impact and actually solve the problem. So uh, my mate became less interested after that because it was more of a theoretical kind of place. And um, I just kind of thought, okay, we'll set this up and see where it goes. Um, you know, I didn't know anyone here. So it was also a, play, a way for me to start to, get to know people, get to know the space, understand what consumers thought. Um, and also also be part of this kind of, I think there has actually been quite a change in attitudes in, in Singapore in the six years I've been here. And it really wasn't very, um, people weren't really very considerate about plastic waste or aware of it. And I mean, not saying it's a paradise now, but I feel like there's definitely an awareness increased. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm realizing we basically moved to Singapore at the exact same time. Because uh, oh, cool. I, I also moved there in about six yeah. years ago in 2016, uh, I just I just left. So we could have been recording this podcast in person in a different world. <laughs> I guess I'm curious, um, you, you've touched on this a couple of times, you know, you, you made the comment that you wanted to go wholesale to businesses mm. and right and not try and sell to consumers. And, you know, you also kind of mentioned that, hey, like these businesses, like we had this crazy idea of you know, the reusable straws, the yeah. businesses, hey, just keep it simple. So I'm, I'm kind of curious for your perspective on, particularly sort of the consumer attitude towards these types of products or this consumer attitude towards sustainability. Is it something where, cause we hear at Lux a lot from our clients, like, Oh, consumers, they don't want to pay for these types of things. You know, they don't want to, yeah. or only a very small subset of consumers are going to pay for sustainability. Yeah. So I'm just curious how you feel, how you think about trying to having launched a number of products. Like how do you get the businesses to buy in? Does it, does the consumer you know, does that piece matter at all? Or is it, is it just something that, you know, people stress out about, but really you have to come up with a good business model. And that's all it takes. I'm just curious for your perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's such a challenging, challenging question. Yeah. That's a huge question. It's uh, probably a thesis in there. Um, I think, um, I think it's right. I mean, consumers don't, the way I, there, there's a small segment of the population that will, will pay for sustainability um, so at Muse, actually, our business model is that we charge uh, vendors a packaging fee to stock reusable packaging. It's a flat fee per month. Um, so if they use more, they get better value. If they use less, they get less value. Um, but we originally started off with a user pay model and a free to vendor model. So we had a subscription where it was like 3 to $5 sing, um per month to have access to reusable packaging across the vendors. And there was a portion of the population here that was very happy, you know, like really happy to do that and feel like they were, they were part of the change. But we realized that for, I mean, reusable packaging for it to work, it needs to be a scale solution. Um, to get to scale, we need the mainstream on board and it needs to be, the barrier needs to be as low as possible. Um, and also from a logical perspective, that vendors are paying for packaging already. You know, we see ourselves as just another packaging alternative, like just because we're, more sustainable um like doesn't mean that we should really try and think of it differently i mean there's a case of like okay we have to get the vendors comfortable with at first which is that's why we did free to start with but um yeah i think definitely they're, they're, they're not going to pay much more um from a vendor point of view i think um it's super challenging uh to get vendors to do it if they don't think their consumers are interested in it or going to be up for it um the cost is is an issue but um i think because packaging is a really cheap item for them already a lot of them i don't think really factor it into their like it's, it's such a small cost that you're not saving a huge amount by trying to you can't i mean you can't really be cheaper than single use currently is so you're not really going to save money against it maybe really slightly if you're really good on a reuse scale um but um 
you're basically going to be cost parity at best. And then they're thinking about all the operational effort. It's not just like I'm swapping in a plastic product for a paper product or a bioplastic product or a compostable product, where it's basically just like for like, you're actually swapping, you're changing a system and that brings effort. They've got to train the staff. Um, They've got to think differently about doing things. It's like that whole, like, this feels like a big thing and inertia. I think it's probably the, the biggest aspects. It's not so much the commercials. They're important, but I think vendors are willing to pay, you know, 15, 20% more. Um, it's, it's kind of, uh, I mean, you already see that, right? With the shift out from plastic to paperboard, like people have these nice craft paper ones, which are double the price of plastic. And polystyrene doesn't really happen anymore. That's super cheap. So you already see that there is a, a move, um, but, you know, kind of you know, the average vendor pays probably around 20 to 30 cents per piece. Um, they're probably willing to pay around 30, but not going to pay 50. Speaking of consumers and sticking to that topic, uh, this is one thing I hear a lot internally within Luxury Research as well. Uh, I don't follow the sustainable packaging space. I'm more into energy. But when I talk to my colleagues here, they go, uh, do you know personally, uh, as in they're asking me the question and they go, are you aware of policies related Mm -hmm. to the use of sustainable packaging how do you dispose recyclable goods or where do you dispose dispose them off? And I was like, hmm, that's an interesting question, even though I have a limited uh, knowledge of Dutch and I can read pamphlets and stuff, I really don't know. And, and my colleague was like, that's because consumer awareness about sustainable mm-hmm. packaging and the use of recyclable products and how you dispose of them off is very, very low. So yeah. my question to you is within Singapore, Asia, and, and you're also from the UK, so I'm sure you have a lot of family, friends here in, in, the, in the Western mm-hmm. part of the world. Um, where, what do you see in terms of trends, in terms of policies and improving that consumer awareness of yeah, sustainable think, packaging a, goods? A good question because, you know, you talked, so, you talked about like there's this big implementation leap and like how much of that rests on the consumers, you know, or the users, right? And especially, you know, in France, you have like McDonald's beginning to adopt this kind of thing. It's like, okay, well, like, as we scale it up, it it gets to be less and less of a controlled environment. So, yeah, I'm curious about your your, your thinking on this part, for sure. Yeah, Uh, my my general view is that it's not really on the consumer to... uh, I I think the consumer is the one with the ultimate power in that business and governments are ultimately looking at consumers and what are they thinking, what do I need to do to keep them on side? But the consumer is the one with the least power, the least agency, the least time to do anything about it. So sort of trying to put the solution on them is really tough, which is why you know, BYO has been pushed for like 10 years. It's, it's such a tiny proportion of most restaurants' um, like takeaway. Um, recycling, again, is a consumer solution, which is, doesn't really work at, uh, at the level, any, any level where it could be considered successful. Um, so I, I think ultimately it is on incumbent on um, the kind of business community and government, I think, together to create the right infrastructural systems to allow the consumer to behave in a different way. So you see like a McDonald's in France is a great example where they've shift, the, the law has come in and said, uh, you have to have reusables in dining. Uh, you, you can't you can't use a single use anymore for that in that environment. McDonald's probably wouldn't have done that themselves unless the regulation had come in because it, they incur a cost for doing it. But once they're sold, that's the law that everyone has to do it. Like, okay, cool, we'll do it. We'll probably do it better than everyone else because we're super efficient. Uh, and they go out and do it. And yeah, there's totally some teething issues with it. I'm uh, I'm sure. Um, but then, and obviously the consumers are maybe now at a point where they're going to be more accepting of it too. That comes with the kind of the, the warming up of them and making sure like people understand it. But I think ultimately you're looking for business. I'm looking really at business and government. I guess I include us in this too. Like, you know, trying, having the confidence to take that step and, and try these things out and create the right systems and environments. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, on this question like McDonald's, this question of scale? Right, you may have seen the uh, there was this UN report turning off the tap, uh, and they forecast in their sort of successful system transition scenario as high as a thirty percent reuse rate for plastics, which some of the plastics producers were like, "Wow, that's crazy! That's like cuckoo bananas talk, right?" Um, and so I'm curious for uh, for your perspective, obviously, because you you know I think much better, frankly, than any of uh, even the the major plastics players. What it really, what's really possible in terms of reuse, and 
what the long-term sort of trajectory, uh, how, how far can it go in terms of that scale? Is it always going to be something that's kind of niche or limited or, or where does it, um, where does it run into challenges with scale? Um, so no, I, I think it will be, um, I think it will be the default in a lot of contexts. Um, I can actually see it being you know, the, the main the main solution where single use is really the anomaly. Maybe you pay a premium for single use. Uh, I, I think it, in the next few years we'll see like in the easy the easy places to start are stadiums, events, um, you know, big closed loop locations. I mean, big canteens, um, office environments. I think events and stadiums will probably I can see in two or three years they'll all be using reusable products. It's just just it's a no brainer. They can actually make money out of it as well. So. It's a really, really easy uh, change. Um, the kind of full, you know, full cities, everyone using, borrowing, turning everywhere is is more. It's definitely quite complex. I think you know, we we thought it would be, but it was more complex than we thought it was going to be. Um, to to kind of make that whole city environment, there's just a lot of different stuff going on. Um, but I do think in like five or ten years, there will be infrastructure in cities for reuse in the same way that exists for trash recycling food waste garden waste whatever like, like i think that will, that will exist um in terms of the number of like cycles you can get out of an item um i think yeah the, the industry is the market and the, well, the whole reef space is still pretty young so i don't think anyone really has a you know there's not a huge evidence base on any of this stuff like manufacturers will say the products can go through hundreds and hundreds of times they've not like put curry in it and like chucked it in a return station and washed it or whatever they're just like open and shut it or something you know <laughs> so yeah um, <laughs> and you can't really go on what they say um but you know the, the products the that we see that we use are pretty durable um i mean we conservatively say 100 per item um and i reckon most should go more than that uh the loss rate is the key bit so obviously you need a system that ensures you can collect back the, the containers because yeah if you have a even if you have a 90% return rate, that means you lose one every 10. Um, so you need to basically have a material that breaks even environmentally after 10 uses. So, um, yeah, you need, I can go on a lot in this space, but yeah, you, you, you need to have um, systems that ensure stuff comes back. I would be curious for your comments on this because I think this is one of the place, the pushback we see on this type of reusable thing. Often it's in pretty bad faith. You know, you'll read a pretty stupid article in the New York Times or whatever where they're like, oh, those plastic reusable bags are actually worse for the environment. And it's like, no, they're not. Like, But <laughs> um, there is something to this idea of, hey, how do we actually manage these trade-offs, right? So I'm curious, um, is it a design question of the packaging itself? Is it within the ecosystem, you know, that the, the retailer or the, the vendor sets up? How do you What's going to impact that? What's going to you know drive that forward? Or and especially with consumers, right? It's, the burden's not really on the consumer, but you have to kind of create a system that's easy for them to use, right? And easy for them to to do that. So, how are you thinking about that? Yeah, you kind of the product is part of it. I think, and um, you kind of have to think about the whole the whole system. So, you know, what um, what accountability mechanism are or how are you ensuring that the stuff comes back? Right, so that the people put it where you want them to put it once they've used it, um, and I guess you can think about that broadly in in two ways. One, whether you uh, kind of penalise them for for not returning, uh, which is the model we use currently, um, uh, and that allows you. So, from our model, we we don't. There's no upfront deposit, which removes one of the barriers for reuse. But if you don't bring it back within thirty days, then you get charged the kind of cost of the item. Um, which allows you to use kind of higher value reuse items because you, you no one's having to like fork out an item unless they don't bring it back. But there is that slight anxiety around if I don't bring this item, then I could be you know, in up for $10, $15 paying for something, which isn't an ideal feeling. Um, but we do get a really good return rate. So our return rate is 98% because in using that model. Um, or you can look at it, uh, okay, how do I incentivize people to bring it back? Um, so there's no like penalty if you don't, but like, um, so if you drop it back in and maybe you, you sign up for something at that point, you can get a reward or a discount on your next purchase or, or something along those lines. Uh, and I think that's quite an attractive model. Uh, it's a lot lighter, like kind of in terms of like friction and the amount of stuff the customer has to do. Um, 
it's also a positive experience, not maybe a potential negative one. Um, I think we, we're experimenting with that at the moment and we're interested in see like what that does for return rates. So I think uh, the context is obviously super important too. So like at events, large scale stadiums events, you need something that's going to be high, deal, able to deal with high volume. You've got 50,000 people leave at the same time. You can't like be taking deposits off all of them or giving them back or whatever. Like, trust me, we've done that with events where you're just like, handing out bills and notes and deposits and it's like, yeah, a nightmare. You don't want to do that. Um, but, uh, and you're probably, everyone's leaving at the same point. You make it super convenient, communicate the program well. You might not even need any kind of like system or incentive maybe the incentives are a sort of sweetener to like just get that extra 10 percent um if you're talking about like takeaway from yeah, fast food or like anywhere in the city then and people aren't going to bring that back because they're going to take it home and it's going to sit in their kitchen cupboards and like unless someone's coming to their door to collect it which is probably like the last step in the reuse market because that's just such a logistically costly thing to do um it's not going to come back and, and you know we've um you know we've seen that some some of the reuse companies that are out there have tried a lighter touch things in that context it doesn't work as well so it's one of this is one of the challenges of also being a startup where you're trying to pivot into different things try different stuff out that all the time you're like okay this context actually this model works a bit better and as consequently we can use this product where like for example like the incentive model you want a light, you want a cheaper product because you can't be using fifteen dollars of kind of cost of product when someone doesn't bring it back. You need something that's more like two or three, um, and you kind of offset that in your costs. And um, like an event cup is like a dollar basically, so you can kind of work with that. Um, but like, yeah, if you're talking about kind of in the open city space, it's it's a lot, it's a lot harder. Um, and then also the kind of quality of the product affects how people use it, but also whether they want to keep it and then some of that stuff too. So there's a whole bunch of different factors. It's a bit like um, a kind of Rubik's Cube and you've kind of just got to line up a few different things and hope you kind of hope everything's aligned to deliver what you want. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. And I think it's it's one of those things where you, I feel like you can make a really small change and it either is really impactful or ruins, you know, yeah, something yeah. like, you know, <laughs> it's like, Oh, we made this hinge design like 3% thinner and now every, mm. it, it breaks and, and no one returns yeah. it because like the hinges fail. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. It just feels like such a, a landmine of a, of a situation <laughs> of, uh, which is why I'm a podcaster and not, actually, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not actually trying to do anything. I, 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 I want to leave you with a uh, kind of one, one big picture final question. You know, in the like decarbonization space, as an example, it feels like there's a lot of agreement. You know, net zero is a goal. Everyone's kind of swimming towards that. Spaces like the energy sector, there's pretty clear roadmaps for what's necessary. And of course, there's some level of disagreement. But in the circular economy space as a whole, people I find have really wildly different ideas about what is sustainable, what the future should look like, what you know, works, what doesn't, you know, there's people who say, Hey, we have to increase recycling rates. There's people who say, Hey, recycling just doesn't work at all. It's, you know, there's people who say, Hey, we have to eliminate packaging entirely. And, and, and so the, it feels like there's this really, really fractured um, space and there's not a single goal that anyone's working towards. So I guess I'm just curious as to what do you see as like the end state or what do you see as, you know, what's your North Star? Because you have to manage these trade-offs in any type of packaging solution, right? Single use for reusable, carbon footprint, waste. So how do you try and find a, a direction to go towards? And, and, and what are you sort of most concerned about? Or what do you like, what would you like to achieve, you know, in the very long term? Um, I mean, so, I mean, we, our business goal is just pretty, it's pretty simple. We, we're just trying to get as many reuses as possible. So as many reusables containers borrowed by, well, as many people, but I guess if it was one person, that'd be fine. <laughs> we're doing it all. Like, yeah, just as many, many single-use containers avoided or diverted from landfill as possible. And so at the upstream stage, we're stopping the waste being created in the first place. And I think you know, for me, that's always why reuse is more interesting and attractive than the downstream solutions, um, because it's stopping the waste being created in the first place, or at least minimizing it quite heavily. I think... You know, I'm not an expert in recycling or, or the kind of um, innovative technologies around single-use materials. Um, I suspect I think there probably is a place for all of that. I'm sure we, we should definitely do a lot of it 
better, like recycling better. And like my view probably would be to uh, just almost rebrand recycling as material recovery and, and focus it around like a few specific materials so that the consumer can understand and like, or even product types, try and get a bit more, as is already happening, try and get a bit more harmonization around like, types of material, like get more modern material out there, less kind of blended stuff. I mean, there's, there's so much to roll back from that it's, it's quite scary. Um, uh, but there's also a lot of low-hanging fruit too. So I guess that you can, you can kind of look at it in, in both ways. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, um, in terms of kind of where long-term, I, like I do think, um, I think that e, like EVs, I think, is a, like an industry that's maybe five or 10 years on from, from where we are. Um, something that I feel like has been around for electric cars should have happened like 10 years ago, but it sort of hasn't always almost just happening now. Um, and, uh, that's one of the sort of similar industry where you need infrastructure and behavior change and consumer awareness and engagement and sort of trying to like bring that all together and maybe we'll be in a similar space. Um, I do think reuse should cater like the majority of packaging in, in cities, um, I don't really see why it, it can't, particularly when you're hitting scale. Um, but there's always going to be a place for um, for kind of single use packaging as well. I mean, like even I mean, if you're talking about like small wrap, like burger paper wraps, like burgers, for example, or like small paper bags. Like I don't know if that makes sense to swap that for reuse, really. But um, you know, definitely when you're talking about the majority of food and drink, then I think it really does. All right, Jonathan, we'll leave it there. I have uh, one last lighthearted question. In Singapore, sure. you can get your kopi in either a cup or a bag. Uh-huh. And um, yeah. the hot drinks in a bag thing with a straw really, really <laughs> messed me up. So I'm curious, are you are you a bag kind of guy or do you go do you go iced with a cup? I'm a cup. I'm a cup person. I'm, I'm not, cup, a, not, not a, drinking out of the bag. bag. I love the bags. <laughs> <laughs> it takes some getting used to, but you can get... You can hold like five or six bags on your fingers, you know, just with the little things. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, no, I've never, never got into that. No, that's doing my cup. <laughs> okay. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much. Uh, maybe thank that's you. the next nice. thing. We need the reusable. We need the reusable coffee bag for. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was great having you on, and yeah, uh, I really appreciate Cheers. you taking the time out. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks so guys. Thanks a lot. Innovation matters. For more, visit www.luxresearchinc.com.